Hello, everyone, and uh, welcome to the official podcast for the autobiography Crime Scene by Esther McKay. I'm joined by Esther. Hi, Robert. How's it going? Good, thanks. It's the way. Um, just to start with a bit of context for the podcast, um, I'm actually Esther's son, uh, and we've been talking about doing this podcast for a little while. Um, and like your comment was that you just felt like there was more that needed to be said. Yeah, there's so much more to the book and, and what went on behind the scenes, both before the writing and during. And, um, I, I, you know, over the years, a lot of people have asked me questions and uh, I've realised then that it sort of opens up a lot more of the story. So I, th- I think um, just will be interesting to delve a little bit deeper into what I wrote about and why, how, and and how it all evolved. Yeah, I think um, I was sort of interested about that at first, but as soon as I picked the book up again to have a read, it was so clear that there was just so much more um, that we could get into about the stories and, um, you know, everything surrounding. Yeah. So sure. anyway, so I think the, the way we would, we're going to do it is basically a few chapters at a time so the best way to listen is if you've read the book first um or are reading the book read the chapters first and then listen to the podcast yeah okay so the chapters we're doing today are induction deadens rapists and a mad woman and father's day yeah okay so um induction Something that struck me about this chapter was like um, a lot of naivety. Yeah, yep. When I think back at my sort of 19-year-old self, especially when I made the decision to apply for the police and how naive I was back then, in hindsight, I had absolutely no idea what I was getting myself into and... um, it just seemed like a good idea at the time. <laughs> yeah. that I think that comes across heaps in um, the story you tell about actually getting into the police in the first place. Yeah. With the um, the height restriction. Yeah. Yeah. Like it kind of comes across as like um, there's not a heap of thought that's gone into even just applying in the first place because you it's like you're just under that regulation height and that was should have been like one of the first considerations. Yeah, I, th- I think that's right. I I um I just thought that I would get into the police force. I didn't think that there would be any issue. I never sort of doubted that there would be a problem, even though I was quite nervous about going in on that first day. I still hadn't thought about how it would feel if I didn't meet the criteria until I realised that there was such stringent criteria. Yeah, exactly. And like it being such a um such an important job like the way the job's designed is so like that with there being important criteria for like so many of the aspects of it well yeah especially back then I mean back then there was all those height and weight restrictions and the academic and the physical side of it whereas now all of those height restrictions and that weight and um, age all that sort of stuff's been reduced to pretty much anyone can apply so it was very very different back then because it was thought of as being a job where you need more brawn than brains yeah and then of course during the sort of peter ryan era in the 90s uh it turned around to being oh maybe we need more brains and brawn but actually what you really do need is a good balance of of both 
Yeah, well, I think um, one of the biggest things when I'm, as soon as I start reading is how much, actually, it's probably one of the bigger concepts in chapter two, I thought, which is the human interaction um, and the communication skills that you need as a police officer. Yeah. Which is something that like, I don't think many people really think about it at all with no. the police. Well, there's certainly no training on that. Yeah. <laughs> they don't They don't really teach you how to speak to someone at all different levels. It's something that you've sort of intrinsically either got it in you or you don't. So some uh, police officers find it easier than others to communicate. But if you don't intrinsically have it, you learn it pretty quickly because you have to bring yourself up to certain levels when you're dealing with people from certain classes or you have to bring your level down to people that require you to be very basic and and give them information that they can understand clearly without it being too complex. Mm. But then you've got the emotional side where you're thrust into a situation where you're dealing with someone who's just heard the worst news that they could possibly hear. They've lost a a family member or loved one or, or close friend and somehow you've got to pull out some sort of empathy in you which allows you to be able to give them that news and, and sit with it and hold them through hearing that dreadful um, information. So it's, it's, it's really quite unusual how you're expected to have all those qualities when sometimes it just doesn't come naturally. You do need to have some assistance to learn it. Yeah, definitely. I think like especially the emotional skills, as you were just saying. Yeah. Like the amount of training that some people have to deal with situations that probably aren't even as extreme as that, as a lot of the situations police are supposed to do. Yeah, and, and I go back to that first day when I was walking into police headquarters and that, that sort of looked to me like a burly old sergeant, but he probably wasn't that old. Um, he had belief in me. And, you know, he was – when I came downstairs and said that I was too short, and he said, oh, love, he said, don't worry about that, you know, just go and hang by your legs in the domain and come back in half an hour and you'll be taller. And I just thought that was a really weird thing to say, but he was so confident that that was going to fix the problem that I actually took the direction from him. And I think that's part of the way police are taught to have that um, commanding sort of official um, view on things when when you're needing some answers to something. They they can actually take control of the situation really well, and that's what he did. Yeah, it's like... um sort of no-nonsense approach. they just very clear and... Yeah. 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 Um, Is that like a something about a personality trait that starts developing once you're in the police? I think so. Yeah. I think you do become very adept at um, giving people information very clearly and concisely and giving them some uh, possible scenarios on on what they can do to resolve situations because you have to because you're constantly in a situation where you've got to find answers and you've got to uh, act. So um, it starts to come quite easily to you to actually think about broadly how things can be resolved quickly. Mm. And I guess you're in a position of like um, a lot of the situations you're in, you're in charge. Yeah. So you have to be like very clear in that way too. Yeah, yeah. And it's funny, I mean, what he said to me about going and hanging by my legs – then I thought, well, you know, maybe I'll just go over to the the um, Hyde Park Club, which was the gym at the bottom of the um, the Australian Consolidated Press Building where I'd been working at the time and never been in there in my life. But I had this uh, confidence about me, which he'd actually almost deposited to me from his yeah. confidence around that it's okay, you can sort this out. 
Yeah, which I guess is all part of the that police demeanor. You, you, I mean, for me, I look to police a lot of the time, and it's like a it's a reassuring presence. Yeah, yeah, it is. And um, you know, that guy when I walked in and said I need some stretching exercises looked at me like I was crazy. Um, <laughs> it, it, it is a crazy story, like to think that something so, you know, medial could have stood between you and like this whole career. Yeah, um, yeah. And um, and my my clear message to him was. I need to be taller. <laughs> yeah. which <laughs> How am I going to achieve that? Um, and then the funny part was when he said to me, you can't walk across Hyde Park in those high heels because it's just going to compress all your vertebrae back down to where it was. So I just took my stilettos off and ran across the park. And uh, I still remember that sergeant's face when I walked in. Good on you, love. Up you go. You'll be right. <laughs> it was almost like the test was more of like uh, your commitment to the job than of your actual height. Like yeah, yeah. him seeing you so keen that you actually did go and do the stretches and came back was almost like a extra brownie points. Like. Yeah. I'd love to know who that sergeant was. I would love to have yeah. met him later on. I don't know who he is, um, but I would have loved to have met him because I've certainly mentioned that incident a lot. And obviously it's in my book, but I talk about it when I do my public speaking engagements. I always um, start off with that little story because it's, um, it's quite a sweet story about uh, someone with the experience um, – and the know-how, how to inspire someone else to, to not give up and, and give it a go. Yeah, I, I think like it's a really good snapshot of Australia too in that era. Yeah. It's, it just strikes me as super Australian, like yeah. everything about it, even the way you describe the surroundings, like even walking through Hyde Park, I, I'm there, like it's just so yeah. easy for me to visualise. Yeah. Um, so obviously... Induction doesn't include a lot about the academy. No. Um, what sort of was the reason behind? Uh, I don't really know. I just um, it's it's sort of weird how I just launched straight into that scene in the book where I'm there on the first day about to walk into the morgue. Um, probably because that was just so vivid in my mind as being a turning point where. Um, something in my life was about to significantly change. So that was the beginning of the story. But there's a lot happened before that. Obviously, um, going to the academy was really nerve-wracking because I was being thrown into a living situation with 100 other people that I didn't know uh, to, to do some really gruelling, um, uh, you know, education and um, training. And before I got to the academy, that day uh, at headquarters I'd obviously missed the bus to go over to Centennial Park to do my run you had to be tested on a two and a half kilometer run in a certain time and I'd missed that so I had to go back and do it later and I also had to go to the academy and I had to do 60 medicine ball pushes in 60 seconds and when I was doing it I wasn't I was always fit but I wasn't um I wasn't trained in weights and that sort of thing so I really struggled and I had this um senior constable counting my medicine ball pushes and right towards the end I was so close to the number but I wasn't quite getting there and so he was missing a couple of numbers here and there he'd be sort of saying 47 49 52 (laughs) and there was this woman there who was obviously the PE uh, instructor and uh, she at at the end um, he she called out my name and he said 60 and um, she wrote it down and then when everyone sort of started to file away, she pushed me into the corner and she said, don't think you're going to get away with that throughout your training. You better bloody get yourself uh, fit and ready for this because, um, 
you know, you, you need to be up to scratch. And I, I felt quite intimidated by it. But <laughs> I think that to me is just like another example of like they're looking for the attitude. Like you were just excited to be there and really trying your hardest and that was the most important thing Yeah. rather than, you know, these strict guidelines which they had. Mm. Um, but I guess that's – it's just sort of another Australian thing. Like they're kind of looking out for you a bit. Yeah. Yeah, yeah he did. He, he, he was helping me through – I mean I, I could have been failed at that, that point again and um, sent away, but I wasn't and I'd already waited quite some time to go back there because – Back then, women, there was a quota, so I had to wait about 10 months before I could be called up to the academy because there was a small quota for women. So I couldn't just be drawn into a class um, in 1982, which it was. It was it was quite before I actually did get to the academy, which was in 84. Uh, the first wow. time I went there was in 82, late 82, and then it was 83 by the time I went back. And then it was oh, 84 right. by the time I actually got to the academy. So when I applied, the academy was at Redfern. And by the time I got in, it had moved to Goulburn into the live-in situation. So that's something I actually didn't know. So between the time where you um, were qualifying to get be accepted into the academy, there was like a whole year at least. Yeah. 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 Wow. And during that year, I actually um, went and worked at Ocobolo Blanco as an entertainer in the show. <laughs> right. So I was wearing all these crazy <laughs> outfits and... Um, being a senorita, sitting on the back of a, a Andalusian with this cowboy in front and having a lot of fun and it was very social and um, some of the riders would actually uh, do dual roles and be dancers in the all-male review show on the Saturday evening and um, it was pretty crazy times. And when I actually left and put in my resignation, the riders couldn't believe why I was leaving because it, it was just the most magical time working there. It was so much fun. Yeah. But I'd already committed myself to something really serious that I was, you know, wanting to do and, and I just sort of waved them goodbye and, and uh, left that part of my life for the next phase. Yeah, that's amazing actually. It, as you say, it's such a polar opposite. Yeah. Um, you have to wonder like what the significance of that part of your life at that specific moment would have been? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I've got a love of horses and, and I've always ridden. Um, and I think I've also got, well, obviously I've got an artistic side to me, otherwise I wouldn't have written two books. But um, I think that artistic side, luckily for me, was, uh, you know, was well, I was able to experience that at that young age, which I'm glad I, I did, to see how that, that side of the world works and the industry and how that works. It was very interesting times. Hmm. Yeah, super interesting actually. So that so the events um, leading up to basically you starting your career as a policewoman um, were sort of, I guess, a little bit um, out of the ordinary, yeah. really. Yeah, yeah. Um, but once you actually were a fully-fledged policewoman. Your first sort of recount of like a few of the things you did, obviously the morgue plays an important part. Um, and you said like uh, something about the morgue attendant was that he clearly liked his job. Yeah. Is that like a – that would have been, I guess, quite a shocking thing to experience? Yeah, again, it was a world that I'd never had any introduction to until I joined the police, so it was totally foreign to me. And, and being in that world, you realise that people become so engrossed in their little um, environment, and that's how he was. 
you know, he he was cheery and he was happy for us to turn up because he had he had something new to do, I suppose, and someone to talk to. I mean, I guess there's yeah. not much talking goes on in a morgue. So to have the young recruits coming, uh, that was probably the highlight of his day. Yeah. I think oh, the other really interesting bit about induction for me, and it's the same sort of, um, you know, hints of naive, um, naivety really, mm. is the, um, your, the first arrest that you're involved in. Yeah. Which is with the highway patrol. Yeah. Um, and you sort of say how you felt sorry for the guy on the bike. Yeah. Which was super interesting to me because... I don't know, so you always explain, uh, described yourself as having a strong sense of justice, but I guess um, the justice kind of changes when you join the police in terms of like um, your compass is skewed a little bit. Yeah. Um, because I guess obviously having like the, you know, the experienced police officer making the arrest and, and you were saying how you like kind of felt sorry for him, but the experienced police officer, he didn't, he was like, Locking him up because I guess he's seen the other side of things when the bike, when it all goes wrong, that sort of thing. I think that's actually the the aspect of it which is ringing true because he had seen the tragedy and the death and, and the road toll and so his attitude was that he was, you know, he was doing his job to reduce that. Whereas I was coming from a point of, thinking that my brother liked riding trail bikes and um, I could sort of see, probably see my brother riding a trail bike and doing something a bit silly, maybe, I don't know. But um, yeah. a family, my family had a lot to do with that sort of thing growing up with the, with the trail bikes on the properties and stuff. Um, and he was just a kid, you know, he wasn't that old and, and he was, you know, he started to cry at one stage and I just, I could see he didn't mean to do anything wrong and he obviously had no idea why the cop was being so harsh on him, but he hasn't seen, by the same token, he hadn't seen dead bodies, you know, ripped up on the roadways. So Mm. the three of us were all coming from different perspectives. Yeah, 100%. Um, The perspective thing is the main thing, I think, Um, which I guess especially the next chapter for me sheds a bit more light on, Mm. Um, like – the next chapter really lends a lot of perspective to what actual police work opens your eyes to. Um, and obviously um, I think it really like covers a wide range too. Um, the other thing I was sort of interested about in the first chapter was the influence of um, PLC. Yeah. On how you saw the world. Yeah. Yeah, so during my education at um, PLC, because it was an all-girls school, we were just really made to believe that women could do anything they wanted to do. There there was no discrimination in regards to male, female or anything like that. You just – they really fostered your your talents and your skills and allowed you to really explore – uh, what it was that made you tick and, and what your passions were. Mm. And it wasn't until I joined the police force. I mean, for instance, the first day when I got to the police, to the police academy, they gave us a, a set of standing directions, which is a little booklet, and I opened it up. And it said, police women must wear bras at all times. 
And I thought, what the hell? <laughs> of course I'm going to wear a bra. Yeah. But that was because I went to a, a, an all-girls school that was very strict and we had a very strict code in regards to uniform and that came naturally to me. So what I didn't realise that if you were quite a bohemian type of person, grew up and went to a, um, a, a school that didn't have those type of really draconian uh, type of dress rules – you could wear whatever you wanted to. If you didn't want to wear a bra to school, probably no one would even know. But um, yeah. to me, that was an unusual thing. But in the police force, everything had to be regimented. And um, that was why I always felt that I sailed through the academy really easily because all the rules and restrictions and regulations just came naturally to me. If you were told to do something and I could see a reason behind it because we were all striving to become one of a service or a force, so we all had to be the same, Um and learning those rules and restrictions were for our own benefit that I would just do as I was told. But there were some at the academy which just completely <laughs> flaunted the rules and went out of their way to be noticed and got themselves into a lot of trouble. And every time it happened, I couldn't understand it. <laughs> yeah, but it just came so easily because of the experience you'd had yep. at school. Very naturally. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so chapter two, Dead Ends, Rapists and a Mad Woman. First of all, the title, I think, sets the whole thing up so well because it <laughs> literally spells out um, the different sort of things you have to deal with as a police officer. Um, and again, for me, it's like it's a shock having uh, realising what police officers actually have to deal with because I think um, for people who aren't really involved with the police, it's hard to understand the range of things that you get yeah. faced with. Um, and, of course, Doug. Mm. your first buddy yeah super important um with the suicide yeah uh yeah it was um so it was the first dead end that i'd i'd been to and other than going to the morgue to see a, a dead body which happened to be that baby but um yeah uh this fellow had lost his wife to cancer six months before and it was just a normal suburban home um two sons who were twins i think they were both 19 and, you know, lovely family unit, lovely home, and their whole life as they knew it had been blown apart when the mum died of cancer. So it left the three boy, you know, three men in the house alone and, and the husband obviously couldn't cope. And and, uh, and also now I think we have a lot more understanding about grief and trauma and there's a lot mm. more support for, for people going through a loss like that. And But I think back then in the 80s there probably wasn't any and we sort of had that attitude that, you know, nobody wants to talk about it, just get on with it, um, move on. But yeah. it's not that easy. Yeah, definitely. And, well, for you guys to be just involved in that scenario too it is super tough. It was. It was super tough because you're going into people's homes in the most intimate place that you can be and yeah. at the most difficult time of their lives and it's an intrusion uh, and you have to know how to be empathetic but you've, you've also got a job to do so you have to be official and you've got to, you've got to look at the, those official side of things which, where you know, the paperwork that has to be done and you know, the coroner's reports that have to be done. You've got to make sure you've got that information so you've got to collect that and ask some really intrusive questions and also go in and examine. I mean this man was in his bedroom, you know, um, private place and the way that he was lying it was very peaceful and he had that picture of his wife over his face. It was just really, really sad. Uh, but yet my buddy Doug, he he handled it so well. Like he 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 was a very reflective man, very quiet, very reflective. But when he when he said something, he had something very important to say. Yeah. 
and that's how we dealt with it. He comes across like that in the book too. He's a man of few words, but yeah. what he does say is important. <laughs> yeah, and he was a good match for me because at that time I was very quiet as well. I didn't say a lot. I mean, I'm a totally different person now to what I was then in regards to the way that I conduct myself and I was very naive, very quiet, uh, very respectful of him, um, wanting to learn as much as I could so that I could do a good job, but needing to also be his support because he didn't have a, a partner he had me who had no experience so he was doing the job of two people so I had to really make that as easy as possible for him which was to be as less intrusive as possible not ask too many ridiculous questions when it wasn't appropriate I think I mentioned in the book that we spoke about it afterwards when we got in the car yeah 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 um and you did a lot of like um sort of sitting back and watching and and learning rather than actively asking questions all the time yeah um which is like, um, I think was super important in the grand scheme of things because if you had have gone into it sort of wanting the answers and everything, mm. um, especially with Doug, didn't seem like how he worked. But no, it wouldn't have been it wouldn't have been a good match. And I mean, it it was also very difficult for those buddies when they had a, a young partner who was a bit inappropriate in regards to that and would think that they had more experience than they did. Yeah. Which I guess uh, could be a, an attitude a lot of people have, having gone through the process of being accepted and going through the academy and, you know, then becoming a fully-fledged police officer. Uh, it would be easy to start thinking, you know, being a little bit maybe overconfident with yeah. your position in the world. Yeah. The next job, um, the rape, is like pretty horrifying, I think, Always when I read the books, like the first, like there's obviously some horrifying moments with the the baby in the morgue and, of course, Mm. the suicide, but something about this job. And I guess you are left to it on your own as well. Yeah, I was. I was given an incredible amount of responsibility with that. And, And you've got to remember, I was only 21 years old. I wasn't that, I wasn't a mature person at that point either. And I had no training, so... Um, in regards to that particular incident and how to deal with those types of um, crimes, I had no training whatsoever on mm. uh, how to deal with that and how to be empathetic and to be and sit with that victim and be of a support to her. Because when you think about it, if if you treat a victim in the wrong way at that very early time of a crime, you can actually add to their trauma. And that's something that I didn't really understand because mm. I had no knowledge of it. Yeah, and you've really got to tap into who you are intrinsically and use your common sense. Yeah. I, the the intimacy of these things as well, which you mentioned before with the suicide, is such a big part of it because you're, you're involved in these huge moments in people's lives. Mm. Um, and as you say, like, it's such an important moment too in terms of how that trauma affects the rest of their life as well, how it's dealt with yeah. immediately after and by the police as well. Um, did you feel like a lot of pressure about that or was it just sort of like you were in the moment? Yeah, I think I did feel the pressure, uh, but I didn't really understand what to do with it. Uh, I, I knew that it was a serious aspect of the work, but I just did the best I could at that time with yeah. what I had and what I, what I was, how I was developing as a, as a person by what I was being exposed to and, um, what was expected of me 
Yeah. Did you think that affected you later on too? That. Yeah, I do. I mean, obviously, you know, that first day when I walked into the morgue and that morgue attendant brought that baby out and I had a friend having a having her was actually birthing her baby in the hospital at that that very moment and I didn't know if it was her baby or not it struck me then how close to home this could be that I had never gone through a tragedy like this or or been in a traumatic situation like this and all of a sudden I was just cast into a scene where I could be exposed to something that was really close to my heart yeah and you don't really understand the significance of being in the presence of death until you actually are. Mm. Uh, it, it's a very personal thing and it's what life's all about and we, we're all going to be in that situation at some stage. But, but but as a society, we don't tend to really think about it until it happens. But we're in the police, you, you, you're, you're exposed to it every day. And yeah. You can't push it aside and you can't say to yourself, well, I'm not going to deal with this until I'm older when it, when, you know, it gets to that point. Or, and you also start to realise that the way that we believe that our life is going to turn out in regards to we're going to live a long life and die of old age, that it just is not a given. Well, that, um, I think it's in Father's Day potentially when um, the whole concept of like you see these things happen but you never think it's going to happen to you. Yeah. Um, must be like a really big shock when, I mean, it's a shock reading the book when you realise that these things actually do happen. Mm. And then for police, it's, as you say, you're involved with it. Yeah. Basically as part of the everyday job. Yeah. And and it's so intimately, the, the involvement is so intimate where, where you're uh, so close to the people that are suffering. And in a way you're suffering yourself, but to keep, your your professionalism and being to be able to keep that outer shell in place and do the job you've got to do you've got to come back the next day and do it again you've got to put it somewhere so you sort of push it down and you you put it somewhere where you don't really even know where it's going it's just it, all you know is that you've done that incident you've moved it aside and you're going on to the next one yeah because it's like a it's an instinct of humans i guess like everyone there's like that saying that everyone deals with it in their own way. But then when it becomes your job, mm. um, it, I guess it almost feels like you shouldn't be dealing with it because it's not your loss. Mm. But it, it, as a natural human thing is that you actually do experience the loss in a very big way. Yeah. And, and funnily enough, at the academy, they never talk to you and they still don't do this. They don't talk to you about boundaries. Um, there's no boundary in place. So it's black and white. When I joined um, and went through the academy back in the 80s, it was black and white. This is your life. You're the police officer. You're going into an incident where you're going to take charge. The grief and the tragedy and the trauma of what's happened, that's their life. And there's no crossing over that boundary. But they don't talk about the boundary. They don't talk about having any boundaries and how you're supposed to have a boundary. It's yeah. almost like it's an unspoken word. But that makes it, I, I think personally I would really struggle to have a boundary of anything of that, something so, what a lot of the time is so tragic. Mm. To have boundaries to stuff like that. Mm. I don't know if it's, I mean, is it possible fully in the long No, it's term? not. And that's what I, what, that's what I realised as, as time went on and I got exposed to more and more. I realised that those things that I'd been exposed to that I'd pushed aside were bubbling back up. And 
what was happening was that a trigger would happen. And with me, I am very sensitive to smell. That's the highest level of my senses is smell. I was like it as a child. My mum used to laugh at me and say that I should, you know, make perfumes when I get older or something because I was always describing a smell. And it was probably a hindrance to me in the police that I had such a heightened sense of smell. So a smell would often trigger me and put me back. And whether that would be the smell of rain or the smell of, um, you know, an environmental thing or, you know, a fuel whatever it was, it would immediately trigger me into the scene without me having any time to stop it. Mm. It was an immediate reaction. Yeah, so it was like a real uh, a real pathway for you. Yes. The smell. Yeah. yeah. Um, super interesting part of Chapter 2, I thought, was the inclusion of the job with the body in the van. Yeah. Um, I just was curious um, why you decided to include it in the chapter. I think it outlines the sheer misunderstanding of how your fellow colleagues feel when you're having a bit of a joke with them the way that that colleague of ours did by locking us in that yeah. van. He thought it was pretty funny um, and he, it, it had probably happened to him, something not exactly the same but something similar. Mm. Um, a lot of police when they started, it didn't happen to me, but a lot of them were taken into the morgue and this especially happened in the city morgue because I heard this recounted when I went back to secondary training that they walked in with uh, their buddies or their induction sergeant or whoever it was into the morgue and were standing in the cool room with a lot of bodies and they'd turn the lights out yeah. and think yeah. that was pretty funny. And that's really traumatic, especially well, like, for a young person. It, it does really highlight the, the way that death is approached by people who are surrounded by it every day. Yeah. It becomes a different thing entirely. Yeah. Which... Yeah. I guess down the track ends up catching up with pretty much everyone who deals with it like that because it's not, it's a coping mechanism. Mm, yeah. Hence the black humor in the police and, yeah. and, and that fellow doing that to us, our colleague, it was light relief for him. He, he probably was feeling sick in the stomach about that whole incident. It was probably the 50th time he'd been to one of those and he was over it and he was sick of it and he had no way of dealing with it. And he was trying to, lighten the mood yeah and it 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 did lighten the mood for him in a way i suppose because he was laughing his head off but um for us it it was sickening but as you say too like he was probably dealing with stuff that was his way of dealing with things that he'd had to um experience in the past already yeah um which indicates i think like the level of trauma that is involved with a job like being in the police force. Yeah. Um, even if it's not really clear to a lot of people mm. doing things like that to relieve the pressure a bit. Yeah. It's actually pretty extreme. Like if in any other situation <laughs> you got stuck in a, you know, scenario like that, it would be horrifying. Yeah. But that is a bit of a way of lightening the mood in yeah. that. Yeah. Well, it's, it's, it's that black humour that comes out. And what I, what I discovered with the black humour I started to get that myself and especially in my early years of forensics, but then I, came, I, I moved past it and all of a sudden everything became really serious, like deadly serious. Right. And I completely lost my sense of humour and nothing was, nothing was funny anymore. Do you think that was a, a good thing or a bad thing in the long term? Uh, I, 
I, I don't really know because it was it was a transition where I suppose in a way it was another coping mechanism and all of a sudden you, you know you use your coping mechanisms until they're not cope, until they're not useful anymore and so the black humor was working for me until I got to a point like a saturation point and then it wasn't working anymore yeah because I have like a um, few friends who obviously um, I think it was like George actually said that was interesting how spiritual you are um for someone who's been around so much death and loss Mm. um but i thought that was an interesting comment to make because it's just like obviously one of the ways that you were dealing or you do deal with being around that kind of thing all the time yeah yeah and and as as the book progresses and you know i won't preempt anything here because we're going to talk about the chapters later but as time goes on i start to really uh, use my beliefs and my spirituality to get me through because I need something. I need something to help me to find a reason behind all of this and a purpose and, and a way of coping internally. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. And I think, I guess that would be a pretty constant in the police force too. Every The other thing, um, I guess it would be more obvious in forensics. Um, and as you said, that that kind of comes later in the book, but, uh, it does kind of feel like a lot of people are left to their own devices in the police with how they deal with things. Like it's a pretty individual experience. Absolutely. It is. And when you are as open as I am, and I became more and more open as I got through my career. And of course I had some really close relationships with colleagues in regards to our distress and and sitting with each other when we were really, really struggling, you begin to unravel uh, the ways in which we're we're feeling and coping. And it's interesting how we all have that slightly different way of coping. Yeah. Or unravelling with behaviours that come out, um, ways in which you know, you use to numb out the feelings and, and to make yourself feel better and, and how to block out the the intrusive thoughts about things that you really don't want to think about anymore but just keep popping back into your head. And um, I well, saw that especially with the forensic guys. Yeah, well, I guess the job is the, is the worst reminder of these things that you don't want to think about. Yeah, yeah. Because you go back into work and do exactly um, those things that, yeah. I like traumatic experiences over and over again. Yeah, and that's why it's such a shame in regards to the the toll that it takes because forensically I absolutely loved the work. I mean, it, it, it was my calling and I I found it very, very difficult and complex to master in the early t- stages, but once I started to master all of the different different types of work I had to do, which was so complex and so varied, I became very good at it and I felt very skilled at it and I enjoyed the work because I was able to give families some answers. And, you know, the coroner's court or whatever court it was that I was giving evidence in, I was actually giving answers. And people need to know what happened. It's helpful yeah. to know that. But then when you have all these exposures and this trauma and it keeps happening and there's no way of dealing with it, no one's helping you deal with it, you get to a point where you can't do it anymore. And that's, that's the tragedy in it because there are people out there that are very skilled operators that get to a point where they can't do their work anymore because it hasn't been managed properly. Mm, yeah. And do you think there is definitely a way that it can be managed properly? Yes, there's definitely the a lot more that can be done. Um, 
that that we're still learning. I mean, the research is out there. It's coming in every day. We're learning more and more every day about the human spirit and what drives us and what keeps us healthy and what allows us to hold ourselves together under these extremely traumatic and um, difficult situations. But there are things in certain people that can be pulled out to assist them to to continue that work and to be able to stay well and healthy through it. Yeah. Um, and I, I guess it's so important that those things are continued to be studied because it's, yeah. as you say, these people become so skilled and specialised at what they do. It's like the one thing holding a lot of people back from being able to continue doing that, yeah. that work, which is so important too because, as you say, um, being able to give people the answers um, behind... I guess sometimes um, sort of suspicious scenarios, but just any just traumatic um, scenarios is so important. Yeah, and that's what I also started to realise in the, even in those early stages when I was with Doug. You know, when he went into those those jobs where there was deceased persons there, he was professional. He knew what he was looking for. Um, he had done enough time in the police to to pick up on something that wasn't quite right, and and at that point he would call in forensics. But if he if he felt that it was um, very clear cut uh, and that he had enough evidence there to point in the direction of it being a simple suicide, I mean, it sounds horrible me saying the word simple, but sometimes when people decide they're going to end their life, it is a fairly simple procedure. They've thought it through really well. And they've made a decision to do it and that's that's what they want. And so when he, he could walk into a situation and, and explain that to me, what that evidence was and what he was seeing and why he was making the decision that he was making, it was very clear that he was a professional and he knew his job really well. Which is so important because, well, is just another highlight to why it's so important to have police who are experienced Um. Because you can't learn that unless you've done the job. Yeah, that's exactly. A, that's something that you don't learn until you're there. Yeah, you can't read it from a book. I mean, you can learn all of that law and training at the academy, but you, you just cannot learn the slightly different scenarios you're going to be faced with at every different scene and uh, the power of, of interviewing people and being able to get to the heart of what actually has happened in the lead up to it. I mean, obviously those those twin boys, we sat on the lounge with them and, and um, Doug spoke to them very respectfully about what had happened with their mother and, and you know, the story around her type, her, that she had breast cancer actually and um, how that had happened and what they'd experienced with that and how they dealt with it with their father and then how their father was afterwards. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I guess moving on to the next chapter, um, still talking about that ability to break things down for people and having to um, assess these scenes and still be able to be in those scenarios where it's, a moment of extreme loss for families. Um, all, all of these things basically we've been talking about that police have to know how to do. Mm. Um, we go into Chapter 3, Father's Day, mm. which every time I read the book, um, super moving mm. for me. Um, it just is... Um, it sort of contains 
I think everything that we've been talking about that makes police work such a difficult job. Mm. Um, and I thought it was super interesting because I obviously I hadn't read it for a while. The inclusion of the abseiling mm. death. Mm. Um, because when I got to the chapter, I thought, um, oh, you know, this is just going to be the Father's Day job. But then the abseiling death. Um, yeah. What was the reasoning behind including that in the... That was really a story about Brad, uh, that my partner on the day. So Brad, Brad was um, a, a career police officer who had cancer and policing is a family. And this is where as years have gone on, when things have changed with a lot of police becoming unwell, that we've lost that sense of family. But at that point, the sense of family was extremely strong and you're in life or death situations together and you need each other and you rely on each other and you become quite close-knit. So obviously having someone at the station who had cancer at that time was very concerning to the crew and the team and and because I was working with him that day and we got called to that job with it. And again, it was a 19-year-old boy um, who had, was abseiling with his father and had um, leapt backwards with that rope before that carabiner had put it, been put in place so the rope gave way and he was killed. He, he fell quite a long distance and... He was killed instantly. That's a just to interrupt to it. It's another reminder to me about how these super tragic things actually do happen. Yeah. Um, if someone said something like, you know, um, people die abseiling all the all the time, I as much as I might agree with it, it, it doesn't register in my brain. You know, for, for instance, if I went abseiling it when when I was at school or something, um, you you tell yourself people don't die doing this. This mm. is. It's safe, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, but, you know, things, accidents happen and people take their eye off the ball for a minute and, um, you know, the father did say to the group, don't don't descend because I've only got one carabiner and I'm, I need to attach it once we get to the top. But the mistake he made was putting the rope in place. It should have never have been hung there. And the son, whether he heard him say that or not, and who was an experienced abseiler, got to the top first and just decided to do the descent. He'd probably done it before, um, but the carabiner wasn't in place, so the rope gave way. Yeah. And again, I found myself in this horrible, horrible situation with a father and son um, where you see the pain and it's physical as well as mental where someone has lost a child and you're supposed to just hold it all together and be professional. And there were a lot of people there. There were a lot of other people that were abseiling. So they were all equally as distressed. There was people crying and yet Brad, my partner, who was dealing with his own impending possible death. Yeah, which which makes it even more, um, makes it have even more of an impact. Yeah. Well, the whole time I was there, I was thinking about it. I kept thinking how, how would Brad be feeling? He could see how this death was impacting on the, the father. And, of course, the father was kept saying over and over, how am I going to tell his mother he kept saying, I've, I've, I've killed him. You know, it was just awful. Yeah. Um, and, of course, he didn't kill him, but it was an accident. But, um, yeah, it was it – was, it kept – it was bringing it close to home because I had a partner that I was working with who I knew was very unwell. And yeah. he'd come back to work in the belief that – well, pretty much what we'd been told was that he was going to die. He was terminally ill. But – Brad, all he wanted to do was be a police officer, so he wanted to come to work. And we were to accommodate that and work with him until he couldn't work any longer. So at that point he wasn't too unwell. Um, You could tell that he had had cancer because he'd lost his hair and such, but 
he was still able to he was a senior man on the crew working with me he was still able to do his job but um as the weeks went on he became more and more more unwell and the last time I saw him sitting in the front of the truck we were we were using him as a third man on a crew because he couldn't physically do any do his work but he wanted to put his uniform on he wanted to come to work every day and um this goes to show the loyalty that police have Mm. to the job and he was sitting in the front of the police truck and we'd arrested a nun actually uh, who'd been shoplifting at the local uh, Kmart. She, she stole some uh, some jewellery. I don't know what she was going to do with this jewellery but she had it down inside a habit <laughs> <laughs> and um, they'd caught her and I was on um, uh, foot patrol and I'd had to go in there and, um, and, and be involved in the arrest but he was sitting in the front of the uh, of the truck as a third man in a crew with his head down, and he was so unwell. He was so sick, and um, yeah, it was pretty sad. But he just wanted to be part of policing, so we just allowed him to do that till he couldn't do it anymore. So I guess for you guys, it was uh, it was basically putting a face on the loss, though, that you're experiencing every day. Yeah. Um, because even though it was extreme loss, um, you didn't really know the people, I guess, most of the time that you were dealing with. Mm. Um, but then when you have loss in your own sort of circle, mm. it humanizes it, Yeah, I guess. Yeah. Um, then it goes to working with Roger. Mm. Um and I thought, and the the job with the dog, super interesting way of introducing working with Roger. Um, but for me, it just spelled out like uh, the rate at which police are expected to work, like how quickly the jobs just have to be dealt with. Yeah. Because um, you kind of explained that maybe shooting the dog midair wasn't the best idea. <laughs> um but because you just, it was like, just got to get the job done, get on to the next job. Yeah, yeah. Um, you just deal with it how you can. it, And that kind of, um, for me, creates that sense of um, urgency and pressure that builds up, I think, um, when you're doing that job as, your, as a daily job. Yeah, it, there, there is a lot of pressure and it's constant. I mean, the day before when I was working with Brad, we actually got called to a car alarm and we were, we were sort of on the side of the road in this sort of bushy area when there was this car there with the alarm going off. And um, you sort of become jack of all trades and he, he knew how to, to get pop the bonnet of it and um, took the coil off or something. It was a part that he removed to, to stop the alarm going off. You learn all these sort of things that you have to do and then we got the call to the abseiling incident. So we left that and went to the abseiling incident. And, of course, the next day with Roger, and Roger had already had the death of the abseiler and all of that stress the day before. And then him and I were working that day and then the dog and then having to put the dog down. And, um, and yeah. Roger being such a lover of dogs too. Yeah. yeah. Um, it, it, just more loss. It's, it's more um, sort of, I guess grief that you can't approach as you have to separate he would I guess he would have had to have separated his love for dogs and the job yeah you know I've I've sort of thought about that since uh, because he went on to be a dog handler in the police and he always had skills around dogs and he still has he's still a dog trainer and how he had to put his police hat on 
and remove himself from his love of the dog, of the animal, um, who he, ador- he adores dogs. And he's very good with dogs. But he also identified very, very quickly that that dog was a danger. And when you're looking at what's more important, the life of a, of a person or, you know, a dog that could be potentially extremely dangerous, which had already proven to be, he had to take the right course of action. Yeah. But I guess that is an interesting concept. The police hat comes on before the, the human mm. um, sort of aspect of it. So he puts yeah. the police work first. And yeah. that's sort of what you have to do all the time to be able to properly deal with these situations. Yeah. Um, I guess to uh, the a really important bit about the job with the dog was that it shows how Roger was the leader. And he really mm. was, which which is always the case, but he that really um, is shown too when you go to the job uh, with the car accident. Yeah, yes, he was. He was completely in control. Yeah. Um, I was still extremely naive at that stage. I mean, we're only into the ninth month of my probationary period, so I was still learning. I hadn't been to a serious accident like that before. And, um, yeah, he took complete control of that, every aspect of it. And which would have made it harder for him because he didn't have a partner who was experienced enough to take the part of the load. He had to take the whole load. Yeah. Um, do you think he was often in a situation like that, or? Yeah, he was because he was one of the one of our really experienced cops, and he was he was good at everything. You know, there are some cops that have certain um, traits that are of expertise which are particular, but he he was one of those ones that could just do anything. He could just set his mind to any anything at all, you know, from putting a dog down to a delivering a death message in the worst possible situation. He could just oscillate from being strong and taking charge of that dog to actually being, um, you know, empathetic and compassionate and, and soft. Which yet, is unbelievable to, to have to have that broader range yeah. of um, responses is such a tough thing. Yeah, and especially when he's, he also had to perform a medical procedure in that incident as well. I mean, giving mouth to mouth. Mm. That was another skill that he just launched into without even a thought. There was no split second of, oh, can I do this or not? It was just he did it. He knew exactly what he had to do and he just went straight into doing what he needed to do to try and, you know, to help that boy or to try and save his life. So the incident of the accident, which is the main focus of the chapter, mm. when you guys got the call for that job, um, what's what's the first things that come? We knew it was head? bad. Yeah. We knew it was bad. Um, the message came through that it was a fatality. So, and there was it, it was a message that possibly more, it was a multiple fatality. So we knew it was bad. So that's why we just we, we literally ran to the police car, uh, the truck, and got in it and just. Uh, Normally the probationary constable will drive, but he drove because it was an urgent duty. So we had lights and sirens on and we just absolutely flew out there. And we also had to drive along Appen Road, which is one of the most dangerous roads in, in Australia, really. There's been yeah. so many fatalities on that road to get to the road where, it, where the accident was. So um, we were on the wrong side of the road for a lot of the way to get there because it was only a, uh, a single carriage each way. So it was a pretty hairy trip, but it just went so quickly. So your your um, senses are already heightened on the way there. Yeah. Your adrenaline's already pumping. 
Mm. Um, it's already a life or death situation before you even get to the job. Yes, and it's a sense of dread that I didn't understand until later. Now I get that sense of dread in the pit of my stomach it, that crops up when I'm triggered by something. And I had it then, but I didn't know what it was. Yep. So it's a, it's a physical feeling. And, so, and that was something you learnt to recognise later in your police career or, mm. or afterwards? Yeah, later, yeah. much later. Um, so, again, like every time I read this chapter, I, I am so like overwhelmed by the strength and leadership that Roger shows. Mm. But both of you, um, it, it sort of comes across as the whole situation is you can never train something like that. Mm. doesn't matter how much training you do to become a police officer. You can never train to be in a situation like that. Yeah. Um, and the reality of being in the room with the family, mm. um, it's just, uh, it's just, again, it's, it's such a, um, an example of how can anyone be, trained to be in that position of delivering some news like that well that's the thing we weren't trained in any way shape or form on how to do that and we were just expected to just go and do it and it's horrific and how anyone could be expected to know how to do that I don't know you do need training on how to do that and you need training on a lot of levels uh, because it's not only delivering the message. I mean, sometimes you get those jobs where you you just get a phone call and there's been a death out of your patrol and you have to go to a house and knock on the door and tell them that there's been a, a death. That's one thing. But when you're actually the officers that go to the scene, you've been with those children when they've died. You've been the last person to see that person die. You're intimately involved in that death and then you've got to go and tell the parent that they've lost their children. That's another whole level. Yeah. Because then I guess you're, you are a part of that, that loss now. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, instead be, of that yeah. trying to distance yourself from the situation, as you say, you, you were the last, you know, person around them when they died. And it was like it's, a, it's now something that you are involved with. So you carry that grief as well. Yeah, you can't erase it. It's, it's a pretty special thing to actually be with someone when they're dying and I know, you know, a lot of relatives like to be with their loved one when they're actually dying to give them comfort. So I was the only person there. Roger was doing the best to, to assist this boy to, to breathe, which was the younger brother that had a very faint pulse but wasn't breathing. I was actually literally just there with him, holding him and looking into his face and into his eyes. And when he opened his eyes and looked into my eyes and died, he told me that he was he was going to die. There were no words, but that's what he said. It's okay, I'm, I'm going to go now. And not that I thought of those actual words at the time, but I instinctively knew that he had died. Yeah. Whereas Roger's role was with doing the resuscitation, was trying to assist him to live. And so then it became my duty to tell Roger that he had died. Because Roger didn't actually see him look at him like that because Roger was performing yeah. mouth to mouth. So it was 
it was so hard to tell Roger that he died because Roger didn't want to hear that. Mm. And I actually didn't want to tell him that, but I had to. I, I actually think that's kind of the role you ended up taking in that partnership um, a lot of the time. You sort of were maybe a little bit more caught up in the reality of the situation, I think, sometimes. Roger was just, he was in the work mode. He, was save, he wanted to save these people. But you were sort of more on the outer, so you experienced more of the reality of the situation. Yeah. And, I, and, and when I think about it now, I accepted it. I accepted it straight away. Yeah. When we got there and we saw the, the older boy who was 17, who was the driver, he, he, his body was almost laying flat and his head was actually sitting behind the headrest of his brother. So the two boys' heads were very close. And, of course, Roger felt his pulse, the driver's pulse first because he looked to be in a weird position. Um, and he, we knew instinctively he wasn't breathing, he had no pulse, he was dead. And I accepted that straight away. I absolutely 100% accepted that he was dead. So we then went to the back seat and saw, because we were standing on that side of the car, we saw the other boy that was unconscious but was sort of groaning and, and had some breath coming out but it was laboured and we knew he was alive and there was another woman there and she was able to hold his neck and and hold him while Roger just take, took the seatbelt from him because he was he was sort of caught up in the seatbelt and it looked like mm. it might have been causing him more problem than, than good. So she held him so that nothing would move, so we did the right thing. And then we realised that, that he appeared to be self-sufficient. He was in a really bad way, but he was, he was, there was nothing – we couldn't give him mouth-to-mouth, we couldn't do it. All, all that could be done was to keep him still so yep. we could leave him with her. And then when we went to the other side of the car and saw the younger brother – with a very shallow pulse but not breathing, Roger just went straight into the mode of, okay, we've got to help this boy. This is, this is a, a life and death situation where it's possible that we can save his life. Yeah. That's a huge responsibility to have in your hands. Yeah, triaging that situation and working out who do you go to first? Who do you help? There's three people. They all need help. And they're all, they're all kids. They're all kids. They're all teenagers. I mean... They weren't much younger than me. Actually, the driver was 17, I was 21. So there wasn't really a, a yeah. big difference in age. Was this like your first experience with a job like this where it was uh, an actual life or death situation? Yeah. 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 Um, yeah, well, I guess it's interesting you say that um, then that when you um, recognised that that boy was dead, it was... Um, you immediately accepted it as a fact. Mm. If it hadn't really um, been something you dealt with before in that way. No, no. It was interesting to think about it later that, that I accepted it so quickly like that. And the other thing, of course, was the smoke coming out of the car. Um, so Roger was really uh, quite um, adamant that we needed the fire brigade there. He kept yelling out. Get the fire! Get the fireys here! Get them here! Because we didn't know if the car was going to explode, and that was another reason why we took the seatbelt off the other guy because we didn't want to move him because we suspected he might have had some sort of spinal injury. But if the car was going to catch on fire, he would have had to have been moved. Yeah. So we sort of set that up to the best that we could, and that's why Roger was trying to get that door open when we were when he was resuscitating uh, the younger boy because he wanted to be able to remove him if we had to, as if if the car blew up and we, we would have all been burnt. I mean. If it blew up, we were right in it. So, Well, that's actually um, 
a point you've made just with me before is that as police and first responders, you're often in situations that are actually quite dangerous, mm. but you, again, just see it as part of the job. It never really strikes you that you personally are actually in a lot of danger. Mm. Yeah. Well, you, you don't consider your own danger because you've got a job to do and you, that's why you're there. Everyone's looking to you. Literally everyone yeah. is looking to you to fix this situation and to do something. So you go straight into that mode of, of trying to work out what, what's the most important steps and, and then start taking them. So does a job like this f- still feel like that um, it's a part of the job or does it, does it feel like something more? It becomes something more when you find yourself immersed in the family situation. I mean, I, th- I think being at the scene and, and hearing that, I knew there was a man running down the road and I thought, oh, my God, this is going to change everything. Yeah. Being there with those that were at that point anonymous people, anonymous boys, but then for a family member to, be, to come into this mix, I knew that the whole thing was just going to ramp up to a totally different level. And I didn't know how to handle that. I wasn't trained to handle that either. Yeah. So running up to him and stopping him before he got to see what he was going to see was all I could think to do. And thank God he, he did what I asked him to do and I led him to the side of the road. I just took him by the arm and I just directed him over to the side of the road and I stopped him. And I was able to ask him, you know, which, where was your son sitting? It's all I could think of. And I was so relieved to hear that his son was sitting in the back. Yeah. Because I could give him some sort of hope. A little bit of almost good news at least. Yeah. In the context of the situation. And of course, years later, I actually met that boy. Mm. And that's another story in itself. But what I found out later was that his father, his mother and his grandparents had driven out to that bridge because they'd heard that there'd been an accident and they thought that their their child had been in the accident, so they drove there. They just knew. They just knew, which is unheard of. Unbelievable. And it being Father's Day, they had, of course, everyone was having these family lunches and the family was all there, so they'd driven out there. When they stopped and saw that it was the car that their son was in, the grandparents and the parents were standing together and, of course, then the, the father was running down the road. The grandmother actually had a heart attack. Really? Yeah. So she was, and I can't remember if she was airlifted to hospital as well or they sent a separate ambulance for her, but um, she was then, she then became a crisis. She could have died there as well. So. so- so she did. She survived that. She did survive the heart attack. Because yeah. as soon as you just said everyone jumped in the car and they went to the bridge and they saw the car there, you can. I cannot personally imagine a worse thing to see. Mm. Like to be dreading that image and then to get there and have that mm. be confirmed. Yeah. Your heart would sink. Yeah. Yeah. Um. I think. The moment that always really strikes me in this chapter is when you're in the house with the family. Yeah. Um, And it's that when you finally recognise your emotions in the situation. Yeah. When you start to cry. Yeah. And it it was like the tear just dropped down my face and I could taste, you know, that salty taste of your tears? Yeah. Because I couldn't wipe it away because I felt like it wasn't supposed to be there. So I just let it go where it needed to go. It didn't, it just had to drop to the floor. So, I, well, I guess then almost the true emotion is still not fully recognised. The true impact mm. of that event 
I mean, is is kind of represented in that tear just dropping to the floor. Yeah. Um, rather than wiping it away, it's almost like you're not acknowledging that mm. it's happened in the first place. Yeah, and I think that's true. Yeah. Um, the next part of the story that really sticks out to me is when everyone gets in the car to go and identify the bodies. Mm. I don't know what it is about um, getting in a car, but it almost brings things into focus for me. I, I don't know what it is. Like um, once you get in the car, uh, maybe everything doesn't seem quite as real. It's, it's such a medial thing. Like everyone drives everywhere. You just like they're mm. following the car. Um, did it feel like that when you got in the car with Roger or was it the reality of it still really clear? No, it was like a funeral procession. Yeah. We were, we were like the hearse and they were following. That's how I felt. We, we, we had all of the death on us, you know. Um, Roger had the blood on him and um, he had the bloodied handkerchief in his pocket where he'd wiped the blood away. Even that is so shocking to me. Is it like you don't realise the reality of death like that going to deliver the message and he's still covered in the blood. It's like, mm. um, I don't know, it Just it's just shock, it shocks me for someone who hasn't been in that scenario. Mm. Um, yeah. Yeah, and, and there was no way of changing that situation because he was so adamant he wanted to give the news to the parents before anyone else gave it to them. And, and that just goes to show the level of professionalism because you could avoid that. I mean, if you wanted to avoid it, you well, could. I was going to ask if it was sort of general practice to be the ones to deliver the message if you were at the job. Absolutely would be the best case scenario, would be for you to give that message as soon as possible. And it usually was the, the, the position of the crew that went to that job that would that give that message and that would follow that through right the way through to the coroner's court and do all the um, paperwork as well as, as we went to do the ID, obviously, identifications at the hospital. But, yeah, you, you had to, to follow it right the way through, and that's yeah. the way it normally is, unless there's a death out of your area in a different patrol and it's, it's impossible for that patrol car or crew to drive, you know, two hours to, to, to deliver a death message like that. Yeah. Um, so then, obviously, once the bodies are identified... Um, I, when they were identified, kind of feels like um, it's sort of taken out of your hands a bit. Yeah, because I, I do remember thinking to myself when, when the father said, is it possible that it might not be them? That was the only little ray of hope that it might be that it's not his children. But then I thought to myself, well, it's, if it's not his, it's someone. it's someone else's. Yeah. And I knew in my heart that it was his children, but... There was just that little tiny ray of hope in the drive to the the mortuary that it may not be. Something like I, I just um, I, I can feel the energy that would have been in the car mm. of you and Roger and both um, the grandfather and the father mm. of the boys, um, which, like- as you say, like the you know the procession it feels like that there's such a a feeling of just um loss yeah i kept looking in the revision mirror because those big f 
150 trucks we drove had really big uh, side mirrors and I kept looking in the side mirror and I could actually see the faces of the father and the grandfather in the car behind. Because you just wonder what, like, what are they thinking? What are they talking about? Yeah. Um, what could you possibly mm. do to try and, I guess, because once you get in the car, it, it's almost like a bit of a scenario of, um, it's normally a scene of a bit of small talk sort of thing. Mm. Um, but then as you, in a situation like that, it's just, it's completely different. Yeah. Well, I mean, Roger and I were silent for most of the way, so I felt that was probably the same scenario. Yep. Um and the car behind us and and you know I I just didn't know what to say and as I felt when I looked out at the sky that beautiful blue sky and this amazing orange sunset like this beautiful end to a day you know to a spring day and it was just so cruel does that I guess that lends perspective to for most of the people in um the area the day was just a general Father's Day with a beautiful afternoon. Yeah, because but we had that weird storm, and which is which is why the accident happened. Mm. Um, we had that really severe thunderstorm with with um, really heavy torrential rain, and it was gone as quickly as it came. It was it was just a really short, sharp storm. Yeah, and they just happened to be driving onto that bridge when it happened. Yeah. So it was all about timing. Which I, I guess could be said about you guys being involved in the job as well. Um, obviously with the two boys becoming a bit of a reoccurring thing for you in your career as well. Yeah, yeah. Getting other jobs with other boys on bridges. Um, yeah, a similar thing. And young men, you know, like, the day before the 19 year old abseiler that actually struck life. me as well and, yeah. and actually the death of brad and the abseiler together mm. um i was actually wondering if it was intentional to include the deaths of two young men before the the incident of the, at the bridge no i just it just is the way that it unraveled mm. and the way that it was but as my career goes on obviously when you read the book you see that there are incidences with young men that I am involved in throughout my career. So that was sort of um, the most difficult, tragic ones I did were always young men. Um, yeah. But, you know, at the, at the scene as well, um, when that father, when I asked the father where his son was sitting, he was telling me that there was four boys in the car and years later I met the boy, that the other boy that was supposed to be the fourth boy in the car and he was actually the son um, of my former husband's um, employer. And I asked him about that and he, the, three, the, the three boys pulled up at his house. Um, he was out the front with his surfboard ready to go with his towel sitting on the surfboard. It was on the nature strip. And the car pulled up. The father came out and said, no, you're not going. It's Father's Day. We've got a family day at home. You're going to stay at home and you're not going there surfing. Wow. So he took a photograph of his, of his surfboard with a um, towel on it, just, just a surfboard with a towel, and he showed me the photo. And it was a really uh, unusual photograph of this surfboard and towel with nothing else. Almost a bit haunting. It was. It sort of signified 
what saved his life. Yeah. That surfboard and that towel were there ready to go, but his father said no, so he just took a photo of what could have been. What could have been, exactly. Yeah. Um, after the job, obviously it was a specifically extreme job for both Roger and yourself. Like it wasn't just an everyday thing. Mm. Um, but you both dealt with it in your own ways too. Mm. Yeah. Um, which I guess highlights the concept of what I was saying before with how it feels like a lot of police are left to their own devices a bit with how they deal with things. Mm. Um, I just wondered um, if you noticed any consistent patterns you picked up, uh, especially earlier in your police life, that you maybe didn't do consciously to deal with days like this? Um. Well, obviously, my mum was uh, – she was a social worker, so she, she understood a lot of the human condition and, you know, grief and all that sort of stuff. So she supported me a lot, and I was lucky to have that, and I learned a lot from her. She gave me a lot of um, insight into mm. what I might be feeling, and, and we did a lot of talking. And um, obviously, I've done a lot of talking about this with you as you've grown up, and you've grown up with this. You, you know a lot about it. So I've never been one to, to force it down. but Well, even um, literally yesterday, um, it's a good example of, I guess, how the work you do in the police follows you for the rest of your life. Um, I ended up driving the exact same road this incident happened on. Mm. Um, and that, that feeling still washes over you of the horror of the event. Yeah, yeah. It's, I'm so petrified of having that happen to me where, where that mother was and hearing that scream uh, and seeing her trying to deal with the loss of those children. Of course, when I had children myself, I understood it fully then. I, mm. I thought I knew what she was experiencing in, in one sense at the time, but I, I really didn't know the full depth of it until I had children myself. So you driving down that road and being on that road, I basically had to sit on a chair and just sit there until you got back because this thought kept coming into my mind that that you could have an accident on that bridge and not come home it's it's almost paralyzing the the fear yes yeah. it is it's a good way to put it i and the the way the funny way that impacts me is that when i drove over the bridge i instantly recognized it and i it mm. instantly think about you when i drive over and that happens with a lot of places for me um and there's obviously other um, incidents that happened in the book yeah. or that happened um, where the actual place is significant. Yeah, absolutely. There, There is some very significant things that have happened and significance with places. And um, for a while there, I actually had blocked out where a number of things had happened and I couldn't remember. And it wasn't until I was writing the book when I was writing about certain incidents that I was really racking my brain as to where they happened. And I remember one incident that happened in a caravan park that I just couldn't remember where it was. And one day I, I drove past it and I looked at it and I remembered, oh, that's where that, that incident happened. Yeah. So wow. it was a coping mechanism, obviously, of blocking it out. Was to, to forget about the actual location of these incidents. Yeah. Because the, the more I think about it, the location actually plays a pretty important part, um, especially in 
dealing with it later on. The location, yeah. and actually, um, when you talk about Roger driving the bridge over and over again, mm. um, that sort of says the same thing to me. Like that, like the actual location ends up holding a large part of this. You know, it is very significant in yeah. the in how you remember the whole ordeal. Yeah, and, and what I discovered later was that I was stuck in in the grief of it, and and I hadn't seen that the family had moved on and there'd been grandchildren and. There had been other things, although that was just such a terrible loss that, that I was still stuck in the scene, whereas they've had to move on, like not move on as such, but move forward. Um, you never get over it, obviously, and uh, there would be constant reminders and living with it every day would just be so difficult. But they had to um, keep living and they've got to keep moving forward. So. I was stuck and then when I went into therapy when I was in St John Hospital many, many years later, that was pointed out to me that I, I was stuck and then I learnt how to honour those anniversaries and honour those people that I'd known in death, which is, you know, lighting, lighting a candle on the day of those anniversaries, which is something that I do a lot. Yeah. And I feel I just sort of say a bit of a prayer and just remember the spirit of that um, you know those people that that have been lost, and especially those two boys, and and sit with it and uh, allow it to not be so frightening and not not so. Um, yeah, I guess the word is yeah, terrifying. I, yeah. For many years, I was terrified of it. Well, is it, I guess the other thing is that you share that experience with who you, the people you do the job with too. Yeah. And that's the thing that Roger and I and many other colleagues that I had over the years that I did those jobs with, we always will have that common commonality of, of what we went through on that day. And, of course, obviously that evening when he asked me to go back to his place and have a drink and I, I wanted to go home because my mum was waiting for me and I knew that she would be there caring for me and I always regretted not going with him because, you know, he'd gone down to the local RSL and banged on the door until the night manager opened the door and begged him for something to drink. Mm. because Roger lived alone at that time and he sat with the night manager who he didn't really know and unloaded how he felt over a few scotches and then went home and had a few more scotches and then when he came into the office the next day into the station he had all those scratches and bruises on his face and I just said to him like what happened and he said to me that he he doesn't really remember but he just remembers running through the bushes at the back of his house screaming so I mean that in itself is just so traumatic um that he was obviously so distressed and well it feels like he he already wasn't able to process the event yeah he was having a lot of trouble obviously processing it and and you know even though he was having trouble processing it he still kept in touch with the family and he went to the funeral and and um you know they sent that beautiful bouquet of flowers to the station thanking us well really it was roger um roger did all of the Every time I read the chapter, Roger's involvement, it just, um, it's amazing, the work he did. Yeah. It it always (laughs) just makes me think of like, wow, this guy is seriously amazing. Yeah, he is. He's awesome. He's a very special person. you being my mum too, like um, his support of you um, is really amazing to me too. Yeah. Yeah, he's always been very supportive of me and... Um, has cropped up in periods of my life where um, he's just been there to see if I'm okay. And uh, likewise, I have that um, bond with him too, that that 
we, we've, we've talked on different occasions on the phone or in person and there's always that common connection. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's like a, it's an experience that I guess um, like war veterans kind of feel it. Yeah, it's possibly. Yeah. This shared experience yeah. um, that not many people actually have with another person. Yeah. Well, we survived it. Yeah. And, you know, mentally, emotionally, on a deeper spiritual level, that sort of incident can actually kill you from the inside out. It, it, it's, it's hard to describe the levels of how it affects you, but um, it's, not, it's something you never get over and you, you have to live with it um, in a different way, obviously, to the family. I mean, they're, they're, um, their grief with it is far, far more intense, but it's very different, but you, you never get over it and um, you have to learn to live with it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's just, it's just such a, um, a part of life every time these things come, it's just such a part of life that, um, it's so important that the people are there, like you and Roger to deal with the situations. Yeah. Um, but it's something that most people don't want to believe exists. Mm. Yeah, and, and it's also, as young people in the station, Roger, his wife now, Jane, she was a really close friend of mine, um, and there was a few others, we became so close, like we had a, like a very close network. And later on, of course, I became really close with Wayne and Shane in, when I was in my forensic days and, and in a slightly different way with my boss, Peter. But um, that bond that we had, you know, we used to do things like go to aerobics together and we used to have dinner parties and we... Uh, socialized together and we really did stick together uh, as a family and um, that bond was really strong and and it was just a really nice friendship well um you talk about that bond uh that kind of resonates with brad's story as well yeah how he his real commitment was to being a police officer yeah um and that encompassed the whole the whole thing yeah, and I think it sums up really nicely the plaque that's outside Cowantown Police Station, which says Brad Blake, a fine policeman and a great mate. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. And it really encapsulates, I think, the great aspects of police work. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. The amazing uh, connections that you have and, yeah, the, the true commitment to looking after society and, and – doing the very best you can and sometimes in some very, very trying circumstances. Yeah. I guess well, because most police officers, they join because they want to help. Yeah, absolutely. That's that's the, the reason why they join, mostly. Yeah. Um, so it's so important um, to remember that. I, I, I think that's why so many police officers push through the, the hard bits of the job too mm. because of yeah. how rewarding, I guess, it can be in that other aspect of how you really are helping a lot of people. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay, so I think we'll probably finish up with those chapters there. Um, the next three that we'll do um, in next week's podcast is uh, There's a Whale in the Bay, Secondary Training, Pogo Men and Evil Spirits, and Relieve and Assist. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Thank you for sharing your stories with me. I really appreciate 
just being able to talk to you about these things. Um, and I hope some people enjoy listening to it. Yeah, I hope so too. I, I, I really hope people enjoy hearing, hearing a bit more about my life and about what's happened behind the scenes. And it's especially um, very special to me to be sharing it with you, Rob, because you've been sharing it with me all the way through, so we might as well keep going. Yeah, exactly right. <laughs> exactly. All right. Well, thanks very much. Thanks, Rob. <laughs>